The Athletic. Hello, you're listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Our shtick is made clear from the title and it's very consistent. We like talking about football tactics and data analysis. And on the panel with me, Ali Maxwell, today, well, would you look at that? It's Michael Cox and Mark Kerry. Hi, guys. Hi, Ali. Hi, Ali. Mark, what have you been up to? How's it going? Good, yeah. Well, I, I got a message from you last week to say incredible scenes that I covered Millwall last week and their XG or lack thereof. I think it was... Uh, no shots against Blackburn <laughs> Rovers uh, last week in a nil-nil draw. And the instances of a team having no attempts whatsoever in 90 minutes of football, as they did away at Blackburn last midweek, really very rare. Yeah, especially in the Championship. I think it's happened a couple of times in the past five years in the Premier League. But in the past five years in the Championship, that was the first time that it happened. And I think upwards of 2,500 games. So... <laughs> Quite something to, to talk about, worthy of a, of a piece. Um, just a bit of fun. It was an enjoyable piece. I very much enjoyed it. And of course, they left with a point. So all's well that ends well. It's a bit like Michael Cox, isn't it? The rare but exciting instances of a team winning a football match without registering a shot on target. That's always good fun with an own goal. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if the thing from XG is that you're meant to work the ball into good positions rather than shoot, you know, have pot shots from range. Is getting 0.00 XG arguably better than getting, say, 0.04 XG <laughs> if you've had four shots from the halfway line? I've never thought about that. Um, I'll have to get back to you, but... I mean, you'd, you'd obviously have to watch the game and, and find that they tried to play the killer pass that hadn't quite worked, but in theory... True, true, which they did do. That was that was in the piece. There was a, there was a ball through to Benekophobia that just got away from him and the keeper cleared it up and it would have been a one-on-one -on -one otherwise. So yeah, in terms of the actual dominance, maybe there was some, you know, some opportunities, but not actually some shots. Dare I say that's where expected threat or Correct. XT yes. could help us with even yes. more context, which is what we're always after. Uh, Michael, you're on a short-term inter-athletic loan at the moment to the South Coast as a, a beat writer, as they say in the States. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about my credentials to be a proper beat writer, but yeah, Andy <laughs> Naylor's uh, away for a week. So I was at Brighton against Liverpool at the weekend and I'm going to Brighton against Tottenham tonight. So two pretty big games. Mm, and that leads us on nicely to this week's topic. A bit of pottery for us this week, Michael. Yeah, uh, Graham Potter. Uh, actually, Andy Nail is a big Stoke fan. I've never thought of the Potter's link between yeah, Stoke and their manager. That's quite good. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to chat about Graham Potter, who I think is uh, someone who has always received quite a lot of attention, even when he was um, in Sweden and, and obviously came back to the Championship and is now with Brighton. And I think they're a really interesting team. I think he's a very interesting, unusual coach. Well, he's been moulding himself quite the career, hasn't he? From Ostersunds to Swansea and now to Brighton, where he's soon to finish his third season as manager. And if we're honest, as much as we are talking about this Brighton team and Potter's tactics, we won't be ignoring the elephant in the room. Maybe that's taking it a bit too far. We won't be getting away from the fact that Graham Potter is in the conversation for next Manchester United manager. He was in the conversation for next Tottenham manager the last two times they were looking for one. Uh, and he's the current bookmaker's favourite for one bookmaker anyway, to be the next England manager after Gareth Southgate. So definitely a manager that's worth a closer look. Uh, we'll start with that game 
against Liverpool, Michael, a game that they lost 2-0. You were at the Amex. Uh, just touch on, on Liverpool for me. 2-0 winners continuing their excellent run of form. It, it feels like their performance level is incredibly high and, crucially, incredibly consistent right now. Yeah, I wouldn't say they've been at their best in the last two games against West Ham and then against Brighton. Um, they really had to weather the storm first 15 minutes of the weekend. But yeah, they're getting the job done. And really, Luis Diaz, I think, was the unquestionably the star player at the weekend. I think usually you sign a player like that mid-season and you expect them to come in, contribute here and there, maybe you know have a couple of substitute appearances, the odd start. But I mean, he was their best player at the weekend by a long, a long way. And he's really kind of spurring them on, taking them to a higher level. Um, so yeah, I thought he'd be almost a bit of a signing for next season, if anything. But no, he's he's potentially going to play a big part in this season's title race. Mark, it, it always felt like it, it might be difficult for Liverpool to buy forward players, given that they have three such established forward players. But first with Diogo Jota and now with Luis Diaz, it feels like they've done it again. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's it's been a bit of a, a shake-up rather than just a, a supporting role, maybe coming off the bench. But I think it's worth remembering that he was coming in hot from from his time at Portugal. He'd scored 14 goals in the Primeira Liga at Porto before he then, he's obviously gone on to, to score a couple for Liverpool as well. So yeah, they, they've got a knack of buying players, Liverpool, who are sort of, I guess, just approaching their, their peak and then taking them to the next level, uh, I guess. The Jota example, as you say, and probably with the exception of Virgil van Dijk, maybe Alisson in, in recent years. But I think the thing for me is that Diaz is obviously great going forward, but he's already kind of got that Klopp sort of ethos of his work rate off the ball, real intensity off the ball as well. And his pace, his blistering pace off the mm. ball is um, obviously helps with, with his recovery. But his work rate off the ball, I think, is just as important as his work rate on the ball. Another win for Liverpool. What a fixture that is later today against Arsenal. Uh, but it's all about Graham Potter and Brighton on the pod this week. Uh, Michael, how did they approach the game tactically to begin? And what were the opening stages of that game like? Yeah, Brighton were on top. First 15 minutes, they started very well. 4-2-3-1. They played Alexis McAllister just behind Neil Mope. And they were the better side in, in almost every aspect. Um, maybe didn't create any clear-cut chances. Mope had a shot from long range just wide. But the full-backs were pushing forward. There was a clear pa- uh, plan to press opposition goal kicks. I thought Eve Basuma was patrolling the midfield really well. McAllister produced a wonderful little turn to spin away from Fabinho. Um, so, yeah, they were very, very good. And, um, what well, I mean, one of the things I like about Graham Potter, and I'd say this about uh, Patrick Vieira as well, is... I think after the game, they're very honest and very good at analysing the game and, and just just saying things where I think, yeah, you're completely assessing that right. And maybe that doesn't count for anything in itself, but I think it does show that Manju is a realist, a good analyst. They understand when the team are good and when they're bad. And Potter said after the game, um, the goal just affected us too much. Mm. And that was completely the, the case. You know, it was like one of those goals change games thing. I mean, for, for the, the final half hour of the first half, Liverpool were completely in control. Um, and the only thing that changed really was a bit of a freak goal out of nothing, really. Was it a freak goal out of nothing? You know, when you say they were keen to press Liverpool high and that did have an impact on Liverpool building up the ball, but could that have also been a big factor in the goal itself? A fairly rudimentary ball over the top, uh, a lot of space between goalkeeper and the back line and, and it was exploited. Yeah, to certainly certain but I think it was the first time Liverpool had actually got in behind. So it did feel like quite uncharacteristic of of the uh, the game so far but I take your point it is a uh, a bit of a risk if you defend that high and of course he's a he's a very very 
active tactician. I think you wrote in your piece about this game that there's not many managers you can think of who are bolder in their approach having gone behind the, than Potter and Brighton. So talk me through what he did at 1-0 down, uh, more tweaks at half-time, and then when they were 2-0 down as well, trying to chase the game. Yeah, Klopp was almost laughing about it in the press conference afterwards. It was like, yeah, every time we play Brighton, they just completely change the system at half time. I think he, <laughs> I think he quite enjoys it, and he's a little bit, a little bit scared by it as well because you can get a completely different team. But they made a change midway through the first half. They moved to more of a diamond or four three three, really narrow front three. Then for the second half, they went bolder. They went to back three, played three and uh, three against three at the back, a lot bolder with the positioning of the wing backs, obviously. And I mean, it was a mad, it was mad to look at Alexis McAllister, who started as the number ten, um, and ended the game in a double pivot with Pascal Gross, who I think of as another number ten, <laughs> and then had Trossard, Warbeck, and Mope as the front three, and then wingbacks pushing on. I mean, it was so adventurous. I mean, in terms of the actual personnel on the pitch, but they, it wasn't really like they threw caution to the wind. They never really looked that exposed. On, I mean, Liverpool had a couple of breaks, obviously, because it's Liverpool, but it wasn't like Brighton were really exposing themselves. And Potter's just very good at this. Uh, I remember on the opening day against Burnley, I think he changed formation three times when they were 1-0 down and they got back into the game and won 2-1. I think on that day, Pascal Gross played left-back and right-wing-back, which uh, I don't think I'd seen him in either of those positions previously. But Potter clearly has a very... um, He's very open-minded when it comes to players. He has a very fluid uh, definition, I suppose, of what a player is. And I mean, there's multiple players in that team where I don't know whether they're central midfielders or attackers or wingbacks. He really seems to be able to play anyone almost anywhere. Yeah, I mean, even just looking at Brighton's FB ref page on their match logs, it does attempt to list a formation each time. We know that particularly at the top of the game, formations are very fluid. They can be different within small portions of games they can be different in and out of possession of course but in terms of FB refs attempt to to note down what formation Potter has approached in each game I mean even in the last what 10 games I'm seeing 4-2-3-1 4-4-2 diamond 3-5-2 flat 4-4-2 4 3 so he, he really is one of the most nimble managers in the league in terms of switching up his, his basic shape game to game I know that um, a factor in maybe uh, a higher frequency of four flat back fours rather than uh, three at the back systems as I was used to seeing um, over the last few years is because of the injury to Adam Webster plus the sale of Dan Byrne to Newcastle but uh, it it means he's an interesting manager to analyse tactically we'll start in possession I think in in terms of how Brighton approach uh, build up how they look to use the ball when they have it Michael what does a Brighton spell of possession look like? Well, they're very patient. I mean, from the back, Sanchez likes to play out. The defenders are all comfortable in the ball in general. Uh, there have been a couple of games this season where I think they've played themselves into trouble. I remember the, the 4-1 defeat to Manchester City. I think two of the goals came from pretty poor giveaways on the edge of their own box. And I think because they have quite an aggressive shape uh, when they're trying to play out, if they do lose the ball, often they're really exposed quickly because the defenders are just all over the place, mm. spreading wide. Um, but yeah, they're very patient. I mean, some of the stats, uh, I think, to, uh, tell the story there. They have the fourth most touches in the league in the final third, but only the eighth most in the opposition box, which I think tells a story. And also the fourth most carries on the ball, uh, which a lot of them is, is the defensive players carrying the ball forward because they're only the tenth, they only have the 10th most carries into the final third of the pitch. So the stats kind of back up what I think you, you you think watching them, which is that they're very impressive up to a certain point in the pitch uh, on the pitch, 
and then aren't particularly good at turning the possession into chances and at times as we know are not great at turning the chances into goals I, I completely agree with that Mike I was going to sort of build on that with some some more numbers and I think it's a really good point. I, I looked at Brighton's um, field tilt, which I think we've looked at before in terms of um, the share of possession between the teams when you're only considering the touches in the respective attacking third. So, so you take out the middle of the pitch here, don't you? And you just look at who, well, the balance of, of territory in the, the danger areas of the pitch. Yeah, that's all we care about, isn't it? We don't care about what happens in the middle. That's just a lot <laughs> of nonsense. So... Yeah, just considering that. And so, yeah, if a team has an above average field tilt, essentially it shows that they have more territorial dominance in that attacking third compared with their, their respective opponent. And Brighton have the fourth highest field tilt in, in the Premier League behind Manchester City, Liverpool and Chelsea, which is, you know, saying quite something and essentially shows that they get the ball into the final third more often than their opponents on average. But as Michael said, their, their average non-penalty expected goals per 90 is the 11th best in the league. So it shows that they're having that dominance in terms of territory relative to the the other teams in the league, but they're not necessarily having that mm. same dominance in terms of the, the chance creation. So there's there's a bit of a disconnect there between the two, which is maybe something we'll come on to as to, to why that might be. So they do get a little clogged up in the final third, but they do excel at getting it there. I mean, can the numbers give us any sense, Mark, of of when they do create chances? You know, how do they create them? Who and I guess, which areas of the pitch do they come from? Yeah, it's something we spoke about last week, wasn't it? With with Arsenal in terms of their, the sort of the thirds and the direction of which their chances come from. And Brighton, to be honest, are one of the most balanced sides in the in the league in terms of the location of where their chances come from. Um, they basically have 36% of their chances are from the, the left third. So if you just think of the them in the opponent's half and then split that between the left, middle and right third. 36 of their chances are coming from the left third and 37% are coming from the right. So pretty even on, on either side. Obviously, the rest coming down the middle. So Just uh, wondering, as you speak, is a 30% share of chances through the middle, is that a low or is that about right? Of course, the, the middle areas of the pitch are the, the juicy ones, but also the ones that tend to be defended with a few more numbers. Yeah, I think going back to last week with Arsenal, they, I think there was, was a 40% coming down the middle, which I think is quite rare. So I think sort of Brighton are, are balanced on on both sides, less coming down the middle, which I think is to be expected. Often it, it will come down either more towards maybe the half spaces and and those, you know, those flanks. But I wouldn't really say they have a real kind of single threat that, that opponents maybe look to target in terms of a single player. I think obviously Tarek Lamptey coming back this season after a long-term injury is, is really good. And he's actually creating 1.3 chances in open play per 90 for, for Brighton, which is their highest in the squad. Um, so a lot of sort of threat coming from him. And he's just ahead of Solly March, who can kind of play on, on both sides, to be fair, um, maybe a little bit more towards the left. And he hasn't started a, a whole ton of games, um, often does well when he comes on. Um, but he's right up there in terms of chances created. Um, and someone Michael mentioned before, Pascal Gross, um, in that sort of number 10 role, often will maybe drift a little bit more to, to the right-hand side, but he's kind of up there in terms of open play chances created. So those three are kind of, you know, the leading ones, but I wouldn't say that, I don't know, I don't know whether you guys disagree or not, but you know, for the opponents to say before a game, we need to make sure that we stop this player playing and we mm. stop the whole team. I don't think necessarily Brighton are that sort of side and they distribute it quite evenly around, but no real direct threat coming from one single person. Maybe Lamptey and his speed could be the exception. Yeah, I suppose at a push, I, I would have looked towards Lamptey and perhaps Cucurella on the mm. other side, who, who's been a really good signing. So it kind of feels like, 
at their best when Potter ball is, is working really well. The sorts of phrases that we might use to talk about this Brighton side are system flexibility, um, build up from the back for sure, patient build up, as you say, maybe also known as quite slow build up, a dominating possession where possible, trying to create overloads. Uh, and, and a lot of sort of mobile forward players, either strikers or attacking midfield types. That's what I think it looks like when it all works. And those words and those phrases all sort of point towards the word fluid, to my understanding, Michael. But when I was watching a lot of clips over the last few days, particularly in build-up of, of Brighton, I was thinking oh, I'm going to see a load of really fluid movement. And, th- and there is a lot of movement off the ball in front of it. And players are trusted to move into other areas of the pitch. There's, there's no real fixed position. So that, again, lends itself to the word fluid. But the patterns of play themselves, particularly in build-up from the back, felt quite rigid, maybe because they're not particularly quick. And they certainly had the centre-backs trusted on the ball, but maybe not really trying to force the issue. It, it just the sense to me was that they almost always ended up going out to the wing backs and sometimes not to areas where they were able to have an immediate impact on the game. Is that fluid or is that rigid? I guess that's my question. Yeah, I suppose it, it can be a bit rigid in that sense. I think uh, I think Ben White was very good at bringing the ball forward and uh, and adding a bit more fluidity to it. I quite like it's only happened a couple of times, but when Kukurea has played as the left side of centre back, I think that brings something extra to them. But yeah, I think they can be a little bit flat when they're playing out and lack a bit of progression in the passing as well. I mean, Kukurea again, I think is is an exception to that. Um, and it's interesting; it, it possibly feeds into the fact that sometimes the supporters seem a bit frustrated with them. Um, mm. There was that nil nil with Leeds where they well some of the supporters kind of booed them off at the end when Potter was really quite perplexed by that. And they did actually create chances in that game. Uh, 1.8 XG, apparently. Um, but yeah, I, I do I do understand what you're saying. I think sometimes they can be a bit frustrating and there can be a bit of a... Um, there's times where you basically want them to progress the ball a bit quicker and a bit more um, ambitiously from the back. I think you're both right in terms of the the progression sort of through the the pitch. And again, it's a metric we've spoken about before in terms of their direct speed. Um, So Brighton have a very low direct speed. So that being essentially how fast you progress the ball towards goal. And it's pretty much on a par with Manchester City as one of the lowest direct speeds, which obviously when you think of Manchester City, and it is kind of the same for Brighton, it's a lot of circulation, sometimes going forward, but not afraid to come back, start again, maybe a little bit slow sometimes and not actually having... That sort of direct from front to back, which, you know, someone who has a high direct speed might be someone like Burnley, who might be kind of get it long very quick. So that's the other extreme. But it can be maybe be frustrating sometimes when it doesn't actually then result in any shots. Basically having possession for possession's sake and not actually progressing it forward can be sometimes for the fan, as, as you say, Michael, quite frustrating. What about out of possession Mark, can we measure how proactive Brighton are in going after the ball, trying to win it back, or, or whether they, more so than that, like to let the opposition come onto them? Yeah, well, Brighton are, are up there as one of the most in- intense pressers in the league in terms of their passes per defensive action, PPD, another metric we've spoken about a lot. They they allow 10.1 passes before making a defensive action, which is the fourth highest pressing intensity in the league behind Leeds United, Manchester City and Liverpool. So it shows just how intense their their press is. 
Um, and in terms of the location of their press as well, very high up as well. So I looked at their share of pressures across each third of the pitch using data from FB Ref, and Brighton are well above average in the, the share of the team pressures that they make in the attacking third, which suggests that irrespective of their success of actually kind of winning it back, they're looking to win the ball back really high up. And as we sort of speak about in terms of the then what they do with the ball, it's a, it's another story. They then probably look to to circulate it rather than then maybe go for the throat, which have got some numbers on we can chat about later. But they definitely do look to win it back quickly. Um, then what they do with it, we can come on to. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? That they are unusual in the sense of winning the ball high, but then probably more so than a lot of other teams looking to to reset mm. rather than try and spring in transition, look to build slowly rather than counter into space. And I wonder if there's a part of this which is sort of at its core a defensive mindset to an extent. You know, Brighton's defensive numbers are pretty good and have been for, for some time now. The high possession style doesn't always equal chances and goals. As we know, they've, they've failed to score in four of their last five. They've had other stretches like this. But does this mindset does this strategy give them maybe a little more control that can help them defensively versus teams who you know prefer a slightly more chaotic approach and and lots of movement into spaces yeah i think you're right there's a few games where i think um have shown that very well particularly nil nil at home to arsenal where they kept arsenal to 0.4 xg and and potter said afterwards the performance overall was as good as he could remember despite the fact that brighton didn't actually score themselves it was another nil nil um i think the one thing that has been a bit of a concern in terms of the defensive side of things has been the goalkeeper. Um, I think Sanchez was excellent last season, but I haven't been impressed this year. I think he's been shaky on crosses uh, and, and set pieces. Distribution at times has, has not been as good as last season. Um, and he was lucky not to get sent off at the weekend against Liverpool, and that would have been his second red card of the season. Um, so that's been a bit of a concern. He kind of came from nowhere to be, I mean, in, this, in the Spain squad. But uh, yeah, I think it's been a difficult season for him this time around. Well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We're talking Graham Potter and Brighton and Hove Albion. In part two, we're going to discuss his reputation amongst his peers and that XG underperformance, which has become synonymous with this Brighton side. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Michael, a fair amount of different approaches from Premier League teams outside of the big six in terms of their strategy, their general tactics. It feels to me, from what we said over the last 20 minutes or so, that Brighton's approach under Potter is pretty different to, to most teams outside the big six and maybe even more so the group of teams in the bottom half, not so-called established Premier League clubs, but uh, those whose first objective is survival, realistically. Brighton seem to take a, a fairly different approach. Yeah, I think stylistically they, they do play like a... A big six club, um, albeit really not with the calibre of players 
who play that way. So yeah, I mean, there's. I think the majority of teams at the bottom half of the league do play more progressively than they would have done five, ten years ago. We don't have so many time uh, teams playing kind of long ball football or direct football, with the exception of Burnley and to a certain extent Brentford. But yeah, Brighton still stand out as being stylistically. Um, Almost deserving of a, a higher place in the table, if that makes sense. Obviously, that's not how football works. But yeah, they play like a big six club. I think you often associate those who are kind of more possessionally dominant to to then kind of be dominant in all sense of the word. And it probably goes back to... It's prob- I'm probably just thinking of different ways of saying the same thing, that they are in their, their build-up play and again in their possession dominant, but they just can't convert that that dominance in their possession to, to shots as well. And I basically looked as well at what the, the rate of the possessions that every team has, um, what rate of those possessions end in shots. So of all the individual possessions that, that a team has on the ball, what proportion end in a shot? Now, mm-hmm. the league average is that 12% of possessions that a team has end in shots. But for the top teams, that's obviously higher. So Manchester City have 18% of their possessions end in shots. Liverpool, 16%. Arsenal, 15%. So, you know, the, the top four there or three of the top four. Now, Brighton, their rate is 11% of shots, so slightly below league average, the same as teams like Newcastle and, and Everton. So again, you think about how, how dominant they are in possession. They've got the fourth highest possession share of anyone in the league, but they actually then don't convert that dominance into that greater sharpness at the top end. So I think it's, again, it's that disconnect that they do play stylistically mm. maybe like a top team, but maybe not quite at that sharp end, which is obviously what's important. And perhaps that's why... A number of the top managers of the top teams seem to love Graham Potter. You alluded to it uh, earlier. Michael Klopp, after the game, said he is top. I have a lot of respect for Graham. I hope people know what they have here. They've lost five games in a row, but that's the Premier League. That can happen. They played a good game. We were more decisive in big moments, but the way he sets up the team, the way they play, and then he sort of tailed off with with a a (laughs) misty look in his eyes. Pep Guardiola has said previously, I think a year or so ago, we were in front of the best English manager right now. You have to be a top side to play that way. Every pass makes sense. Their movement between the lines up front makes sense. Every player is in his position to get the ball and be free. Among football people Graham is very highly regarded I like watching his team a lot I don't like playing them so much are these managers just being polite in pre or post game press conferences or is there a strong substance to what they say I think they do prefer playing sides like Brighton who want to play a good football game rather than play against a Burnley or Brentford who can make life difficult for you physically but I think there is a genuine admiration for him um, and they do genuinely respect him. And he is doing a very good job with a group of players who, I mean, there's not too many big names there. I mean, when I look through the squad, how many of those had I really heard of or could really tell you about before they arrived at Brighton? I mean, of the 11 that started the weekend, Mope, certainly Veltman from Ajax, Lamptey, have played a few games for Chelsea, but there's a lot of players. I mean, Alzate, McAllister, uh, Solly March came through the youth system, there's a lot of quite obscure players that I think he has improved their level and he has taken them to the next level. And I think almost because they're because they play such good football, we can almost look at Brighton and think, well, they're underachieving because they're not quite scoring enough goals. But really, when you look at how good they are in comparison to the players that they've got, um, I, I think it's clear Potter's doing a pretty good job. And uh, I think managers respect that. They, uh, they are brave and they are very cohesive and they do have... Um, they they have an obvious game plan going into games and uh, those sound like the basics. But I think uh, when you are, when you take charge of a side who have 
been battling relegation the, the previous couple of years there in the Premier League, it can be quite difficult to be committed to, to such positive football. So, mm. um, yeah, I think he deserves a lot of respect. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it's not all roses at the moment and these are the moments where it can be difficult to trust the process. Potter in his temperament, Michael, I know you were in his press conference uh, last week after this defeat, five defeats in a row. He, he's incredibly measured, isn't he? I think it's a good time to talk about the character and, and how he sort of handles himself and, and why that impresses so many people as well. Yeah, he's, he's just very, very calm. And, and yeah, there's no signs of panic Right. I mean, they've lost five in a row. We're doing this podcast as they've lost five in a row. They're home to Tottenham tonight. They lose, that'll be six in a row. And it's already their longest run of defeat since they were promoted to the Premier League. Um, but I think he just has faith in, in his approach and uh, is committed to that. So, um, yeah, he's, um, he's, he's, I think, just a clearly very intelligent guy, very studious and thoughtful guy. Um, and, yeah, it's, I, I think he's just good for the Premier League. I think he's a really interesting character. And uh, yeah, I think the respect he gets from other managers, you can you can say probably the, I think the general public in in general seem to quite like him as mm. well, which is uh, not always the case for for young managers. Oh, you, you talk about some of the the players that he has that he uses regularly, and I feel like his ability to improve players is is very much proven at this point across three clubs. Ostersons, the players there talk about him as if he is a sort of mixture of, of God, Jesus and their dad. Um, <laughs> at, at Swansea, it was pretty short-lived. Just one season, the team finished around mid-table. But really, uh, I mean, the, the extent to which he he gave and developed players like Dan James and Oliver Burney was not just huge for their careers, but also for the club financially, which is, is, is a club that loves to sell players for a lot of money. So that was a, a real boon as well. They're currently 13th. After five defeats, you know, we should say that they're significantly closer to ninth than they are to 16th, which gives you an idea of the sort of portion of the league table that they occupy. It's it's not a relegation battle as it has been uh, over the last few years, or at least it, it shouldn't be unless things really go into something of a tailspin. This is the lowest position they've been in all season. Uh, of course, Mark, last season was defined really by... Uh, XG underperformance or, or, or underperforming their underlying numbers. Is, is that the case again this season where the, the points tally or the league table position doesn't reflect what the underlying numbers are saying? Yeah, I think to a certain extent that that is the case, I, I'd say. Maybe not to the same extreme that it was last season, which was just, it was that was the main narrative of last season, wasn't it? But um, I think one way we can look at it, which again, we've done before, is is look at the, the underlying quality based on XG difference, expected goal difference. So taking into account the quality of chances created and conceded, and we'll look at it per 90, which often gives a good proxy of maybe where a team kind of should be in the league. Um, again, just a proxy, but it's useful. And Brighton, um, Brighton's expected goal difference is the eighth best in the league currently. Um, so it's obviously better than their 13th place position at the moment. And their actual goal difference per 90 is 12th. So again, it shows that that, that difference between their, their actual goal difference and expected goal difference is a little bit of a, a disconnect. Um, I'd probably say it's more to do with their underperformance in front of goal, which kind of leads to what we said before, rather than maybe in defence um, in terms of that disconnect. So they're creating chances worthy of 1.1 non penalty uh, goals. So that's just a little bit lower than last year, but not too crazy in terms of the difference. But they're actually scoring on average 0.8 non-penalty goals per game. So it's actually a similar kind of underperformance to last year in terms of, yeah, that difference. 
But in defence, they're about where they should be. So they're conceding chances worthy of about a goal a game. And yeah, they're actually conceding about a goal a game as well. So they're, they're pro- probably where they should be in terms of defence. But that underperformance is probably a little bit more in front of goal than, mm. uh, than at the back. There's been much head scratching as to the reasons for this, Michael. Um, some people think it's fairly obvious and, and will point towards the striker, in particular Neil Mopai, or the other forward players as well. And, you know, the refrain, get a new striker, seems to be very popular. And, you know, it, it, it appears very simple. Neil Mopai's goal scoring ability, his finishing technique, even the type of chances that he scores or misses, hmm. have been analysed in detail here. I wonder if you have any thoughts on the matter. Yeah, Mopai's actually up on his XG this year, which surprised me because he does seem renowned as missing some pretty easy chances. But he scored some great goals. The one at Watford, I don't really understand how that goal went in. It was just incredible. I don't even know if he meant it. But it was an incredible technique to get that in. Um, I was looking at his kind of career path, Mopai. He's mm. 25 at the moment and he scored his first league own goal in 2012. <laughs> really, really surprised me. He was about wow. 16 and... 100 days or something like that and that's in Ligue 1 um, so I mean yeah they've got a few players who I'd say are very good at movement and link play and are very selfless but not that clinical and I do think there is something in the mentality required to be a really ru- uh, ruthless finisher and ruthless goal scorer and maybe that is slightly lacking at Brighton I don't know um, I think you probably need to um, we probably need to assess it over a longer period before we can be sure that there's anything there um, but yeah I mean it brings it back to the earlier point they don't really have any renowned Premier League quality players. Uh, they've got a couple of experienced ones in Lalana and Welbeck who don't always start and who, sadly, their careers have been kind of dogged by injury problems. But they are generally taking a chance on players and hoping they can make the step up. Um, and in some ways they are doing that and in some ways they're not doing that. And I think in terms of goal scoring, they they are just a bit lacking in individual quality at times. Big sticking point for many of the fans is their home record and how poor it is, not just this season, not just recently, but actually during Potter's reign, I think it's 52 home league matches, um, 1.11 points per game, 12 wins, 21 draws and 19 defeats. 21 draws is a, a disproportionately high number really for, for most teams, I think, and only three teams have a worse home record this season. You obviously went to the Liverpool game on the weekend. You're going again tonight, Michael. Maybe it'd be better to ask you after this, but given that I have you now, there was an interesting piece by Andy Naylor about this topic two weeks ago, about Brighton's poor performance at home and how it's reflected in a, a fairly sort of low atmosphere as well. Fans filling the comment section, both of that piece and the piece you wrote on Monday. Um, Leia Trango said, it's not about a new striker. We've got very good players who have all failed to score goals over nearly three seasons now from a varied number of positions. How or why is it going to change now? There's been no system change to get the ball in the penalty box earlier. Uh, Ross as well says the same issues in midfield over and over again. Rigid patterns of play that stifle creativity press us in the midfield and if we can't pass the ball for that specific pattern of play we pass it back to the defence which is fine if you're 1-0 up but we're often stuck looking for a goal to begin with I find this part of the discussion fascinating a lot of Brighton fans want Graham Potter to never leave the club and think he's magnificent a lot of them point to results point to what they see when they go to a home match every other weekend and say what's all the fuss about They've got a good record of coming back from being behind this season and winning points, in part because they change formation a lot. So I don't disagree with the criticism, but it's it's funny. He says often we're chasing a game. Actually, they are all right at chasing a game. Um, but yeah, I do understand their, their frustrations. It's one of those things as well that 
if you watch them every game, everything becomes so much more frustrating than observers like us who, who maybe watch a full game once or twice a month and then see highlights. So, yeah, I do understand the frustration when there, there does seem to be a lack of variety in approach, regardless of what that approach actually is. In the last part of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, talking about Graham Potter, going to press a little harder on the topic of whether or not we think Graham Potter is an elite manager in waiting and what his future might look like. So, Graham Potter, regularly now getting linked to, if not getting right to the sort of final frontier of jobs such as Tottenham Hotspur, Manchester United and the England national team. And some people go, yes, that makes absolute sense from what I've seen of Graham Potter following his career and the way his teams play. He'd be class at an elite club. A great fit. Other people go, hold on, what's he done to get one of the biggest jobs in football? Neutrals seem a little torn. Even Brighton fans, some of them are are somewhat torn. Uh, Michael, what do you make of that particular discussion? I see both sides of the argument. I I, I think he's uh, he's done a very good job, as you said, Ali, at three clubs so far. But we haven't yet seen. I mean, we haven't yet seen Brighton finish in the top half. Their their finishes have have not been dramatically better than they were under Hewton. They started the season very well, but they're now down in thirteenth. They're not in relegation trouble or anything like that but I think it will be a slight disappointment if they do finish 13th maybe that's unfair because it would still be progression on on last season but when we do talk about managers um, you know amongst the bottom half clubs who might be able to jump up to a big club in the league I tend to want to see a little bit more from them in terms of just finishing higher up the table I know it's a really basic thing to say but I think doesn't that go against those who just point at the league the league finishes and say well until he gets them above 15th I can't definitively say he's a good manager I think you can dig a little deeper, but you can also look at 2018 when Sean Dyche took Burnley to seventh and say, could we not have a bit more of that kind of thing? I don't mean in terms of style of play, but it's not impossible to get your side to finish higher up the league um, than they are doing at the moment. I mean, one interesting thing, and this might be a little bit of a complex one to explain in podcasting terms rather than with a neat little graph. But one thing that is interesting is that from last season to this season, they've completely changed in terms of where they're getting the results. So last season, they finished 16th. So they had eight games against sides below them in the table and they didn't win any of them. But they did beat Manchester City and Liverpool and Tottenham. Whereas this time around, uh, they have won six in 12 against sides of uh, low in the table, but they haven't beaten anyone higher than 12th. So they've gone from getting results against big clubs to not. And I think when it comes to... Whether this is right or wrong, I, I do think this tends to happen, that when it comes to big clubs recruiting a manager from low in the table, they tend to look at like momentous wins against City or Liverpool mm. or Chelsea, and that really puts you in the frame. And Potter's gone from doing that to not really doing that. I don't know whether there's any reason for that, but I do think it's interesting. That is interesting. I, I think the Premier League feels unique when it comes to the question of where do the elite managers come from and what's their career path because you know the first question of where do top managers come from if you take European football and the biggest clubs you know no manager has top level managerial experience until they do no manager has won anything before they do and invariably a lot of them won't have won anything before they get a top club job where shock horror they they often win trophies so you know Pep Guardiola first job was was Barcelona B that's a a pretty specific case of course with Pep but with Nagelsmann at Bayern Hoffenheim Leipzig to Bayern 
pretty solid progression up the Bundesliga with Klopp and Tuchel both started at Mainz and then moved to Dortmund before Liverpool for, for Klopp and PSG and Chelsea for Tuchel Ten Hag at Ajax go ahead Eagles then Bayern second team then Utrecht before Ajax uh, Ancelotti as the Real Madrid manager started at Reggiana and then Parma and then has obviously had the most insane managerial career mm. of all time uh, PSG's Pochettino started with Espanyol and then to Southampton and then to Spurs before PSG uh, Inzaghi at Inter Milan started with, with Lazio which is a, a pretty big job to get first up Allegri of Juve started with Alianese and then Spal and then Grosseto twice Sassuolo Cagliari AC Milan and Simeone of course with with, with Rathen Club Estudiantes before he got the job at River in Argentina it, it does feel like there's more mobility Michael outside of the Premier League it's not a great place to be maybe for a Graham Potter dare I say if he were German and working for Mainz he might have a better chance of getting a, a job with a top 10 European club I think if you're working in Germany with Mainz there's probably more there's probably more mobility in the Bundesliga than there is in the Premier League I mean certainly not at the top of the league for obvious reasons but I feel like there is there's quite an well there's a very ingrained big six in English football and it's quite difficult to break into that um so yeah, I, I do kind of, I do think the Premier League is a little bit different, not in a positive way. And the issue for the Premier, well, the issue for Mangelak Potter is the Premier League is by far now the kind of wealthiest league around. And to a certain extent, clubs from this league can cherry pick what they want from other leagues in terms of managers. So if you are, a, if you're in charge of Tottenham or Arsenal or Manchester United and you're choosing the next manager... And you want someone who has a track record at doing what you want them to do at your club. It's just easier, I think, to go to Spain or to go to Italy or go to Germany and find a manager there who's pretty much done a comparable job. I think it's easier to get them in than go, well, this guy's taken Brighton from 16th to 12th and they've played better football. I just think it's more difficult to see the transferable skills. But you've got to be brave, don't you, Mark, in uh, in decision-making, at the cutting edge of football decision-making. I, I mean, put you both on the spot here in terms of both sides of the how would Graham Potter do at a so-called elite club. Um, Mark, starting with what parts of his management do you, do you look at and see, yes, I can absolutely see that translating very nicely to a very, very large club. I think everything we spoke about in terms of that build-up play, really strong build-up play and, and really kind of having an identity, which is, is a bit of a footballing term, isn't it? But having that philosophy and identity, his is pretty clear, as we sort of alluded to, that the fact that he can then bring that to a, to a new club would be something which, with maybe higher quality players, he could actually then instill it to maybe a bit of kind of greater success. Um, I'm just, just going back to the kind of the last point as well of kind of who was maybe the last person within within the Premier League who's maybe gone from a lower league side to, to sort of the top. And I think one that comes to mind is Brendan Rodgers and maybe taking that leap of faith as well. I think it was only one season there in the Premier League and he did really well with Swansea and then mm. obviously got the move to Liverpool and nearly won the league with them as well. And granted, a lot of that was to do with Luis Suarez, but he's obviously then got a, a really good you know, career at, the, at a high level as a consequence of that. So maybe a bit like Potter for everything that we were saying before, it might just be a bit of, he needs backing. You just need to maybe take a little bit of a leap of faith and you won't, you'll never know exactly as you say, Ali, until that actual time comes along. 
is that the same for you, Michael? Sort of style of play, patterns of play, general tactical approach, plus this impressive sort of record in terms of coaching and development, measured personality. These all feel like good qualities for a, a manager at the sharp end. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and I do think I, I do think there will be, become a point where he probably will be in demand amongst bigger clubs. I'm just not quite sure in the Premier League who that would be. I can't quite see a, a step up to a big six club at the moment. And I can't really see that many clubs outside the big six who would be considered a massive jump mm. up from Brighton. And so, I mean, this is a manager who spent seven and a half years working abroad in Sweden. So I can imagine him being the kind of English manager who would go abroad, maybe to Germany, maybe to Spain, something like that. I think there's probably a, an easier path to progression in club management if he was to venture abroad again. He, he does seem... You know, I suppose there's an extent to which it feels like we're we're touting him in in discussing the the next move and the big move. Potter doesn't seem in a huge rush from how he speaks. He doesn't seem to be angling for anything in particular. And Mark, Michael alluded to it there. Brighton, in many many ways, is an excellent place to work. I imagine as a football manager or a head coach, and it makes it tough to separate what makes him individually excellent things that will translate to a higher level to any other club and how much he might be helped by the structure of Brighton and Hove Albion. They have very patient people running the club, a very clear identity, a data-driven approach with with smart evidence-based decision-making throughout the club from incredibly well-qualified staff. It feels like more than almost any other club I can think of, they have looked at board level and filled it with well-qualified people so that's a nice wrinkle to the discussion as well Potter's in an excellent slot right now yeah I was going to say they are very well run from top to bottom really strong as you say in all departments and I think it would be interesting to see what he'd be like when the pressure was just on even a little bit as you say Michael it might not be that he could maybe get to a top six club anytime soon but I know that the fans are a little bit less forgiving with the booze fairly recently, but I think kind of win, lose or draw, he's still in a fairly comfortable position. It would be interesting to see if he were to move, even if it were to be abroad. I think Ajax could be a good one if Ten Hag goes, just when you said about mm. going abroad. But um, maybe if there were a bit more pressure to sort of win more often every game, if not win every game, whether or not he would... I don't know, compromise his principles, whatever it might be. I think because Brighton is such a well-run club and looks like they're going to be consistently in the Premier League for, for the foreseeable, that there's a bit more kind of yeah forgiveness and stick to his approach, win, lose or draw, because they are such a well-run club. And just last point for me, I'm interested to know how simplistic the opinion that if Potter had better players, very specifically in forward areas, the elite attacking players in the game, whether better finishers plus his patterns of play and, and how good his Brighton side are, despite their sort of financial punching up against it in the Premier League at getting the ball into the final third, you know, impressive build up play. What do you make of the theory, Michael, that better players, better attacking problem solvers ultimately would lend themselves to much better results and, and, and that being a, a big thing that would be in his favour if he moved up to, let's say he was in charge of Man City from the weekend onwards? Uh, I, I do agree with that. I think the build-up plays very good. They need a bit more individual inspiration in the final third, Brighton. So yeah, if you were to give him better players, I think that would be... Uh, I think he's well suited to dealing, certainly technically, with better players. We haven't yet seen on the kind of man management level how he works with bigger egos and that kind of thing. And I do think that is a consideration when he moves to a bigger club, but uh, nothing to suggest that he can't do that at this stage. Interesting one from an analytics point of view, Mark. I feel like it, it makes a lot of sense in many ways. Better players 
are better at mm. doing football things. But also, of course, uh, XG in particular, the best strikers don't always massively overperform their XG. The difference in finishing between a Harry Kane and a Neil Mopai is probably a, a smaller in data terms than what people might expect. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Yeah, it's always relative to the person as well. I, I think Michael made a good point as well of, I think Pep Guardiola had this in terms of obviously having the build-up play, getting the ball into a certain area and then almost saying from there on in, it's just up to you. You know, you guys have the magic and I'll let you kind of, I trust you to actually then have that have that bit of mag- magic and creativity. And I think, it, you know, the better players side of things there, Ali, that you say, I think would be maybe that difference. So just have it, just seeing that pass that no one else can see, having got the, the structured build-up that obviously Potter wants his players to have, yeah, I'm sort of removing my analytics hat for a second and just saying that they need a bit of magic from the best players, which kind of goes down that vibe route that I've had before. But I do think that is kind of true that sometimes it's just that, if not maybe the finishing alone, then just that that pass before the pass or whatever it mm. might be, as a consequence of a good pattern of play, could then actually lead to the chance opening up. Interesting. Well, I've been guilty of focusing too much on on club football here because, as I mentioned early on, he is, with one bookmaker, the favourite to be the next England manager after Gareth Southgate. At the moment, that feels some way off, to be honest. Southgate has, it seems to me, a pretty good grasp on things, but football can move quickly. There's a World Cup on the horizon. Uh, Michael, if I say to you, Graham Potter, future England manager, what's your reaction? Yeah, I can see him being England manager more than manager of a, a big six club. I think in part because he's English and I think the FA will want to stick with that. And in terms of his demeanour, I think he's very calm. He's very authoritative. And I think that is important to be England manager. And tactically, I, I think he's way ahead of Southgate. I mean, with all due respect to Southgate, who's who's done a, a fair, fairly good job, I'd say, as England manager. He didn't achieve that much in club football. And I think at times when England have been in major tournaments, he's been found a little bit lacking in terms of his uh, tactical decision-making, was clearly Potter is is a very keen tactician, good at changing things midway through the game. So, yeah, I I really can see that, actually. I mean, I agree with you, Ali. I think Southgate is is pretty solid in his his position, um, and I can't really see a change being required. But if he was to leave at the end of the World Cup, for example, and it's a funny one, this World Cup, because obviously you'd be looking for a manager midway through the season, um, and club managers probably would be a bit reluctant to take that, but I can't really see any candidates more suited than Potter um, just because there aren't that many English managers around. Mark, what do you reckon? Would you be up for that, Graham Potter, England manager? Yeah, no, I, I do agree with everything Michael said. I think one of the main strengths of Gareth Southgate is just how level-headed he has been when people have... I mean, we're on the pitch and off the pitch with a lot of things that he's had to contend with of just kind of pouring water on the fire when there's been any any hype or anything good or bad. Um I think he's been a real good ambassador for, for England. So I think that similarly, I think Potter would do the same because he is so level-headed. Um, and as, as you say, Michael, tactically, I think he he's proven that he's, especially in club management compared to Southgate, he can certainly um, do the job. And also, strong beard game because mm. Southgate has a strong beard. You see, Potter's got a strong beard. I think that alone is, is worthy of, of a strong CV. Do you think that could be as iconic as the bloody waistcoat? Could be. At the, at the 20, 28 euros, uh, God forbid. Well, uh, it leads us into 
A, saying goodbye, and B, telling you that next week we're going to be talking about Gareth Southgate's England, an episode on the England squad. we got a, a squad announcement coming up, a couple of friendlies. Will he experiment? How might he experiment? Or will he stick with the tried and tested eight months out from the World Cup in Qatar? Looking forward to getting our teeth stuck into all things England and Gareth Southgate next week. But thank you for listening. Thank you to Mark and Michael. I really, really enjoyed this week's topic, looking in-depth at Graham Potter, his Brighton side and what his future might be. Make sure you sign up to The Athletic. You can read everything that Mark is writing and Michael's foray into beat writing as uh, his Brighton and Hove Albion coverage comes to an end over the next week or so. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Just £1 a month you'll pay for the first six months of your annual subscription. £1 a month to read everything on The Athletic site. Football, American sports, you name it, it's there. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.